Hi, I'm Devin Scott. I'm Will Ross. Today, we're going to talk about early documentary sound with Tanya Goldman. We're focusing on scenes from the 1930s and 40s in documentaries that depict manic commerce. You know, the hustle and bustle of day-to-day business and labor in fast-paced, modern, circa early 20th century life. We also get into the ways that documentary practices and styles have changed over the years and wax philosophical on that for a little bit. Welcome to Film Formally. Our subject today is the sound of manic commerce in early sound documentaries. And on the line with us to talk about that is Tanya Goldman. Tanya is a cinema studies PhD candidate at NYU. Hi, Tanya. Hi. Most people are not terribly familiar with early documentary films. And to the extent people have an idea of it, there's a sense that they're all unadventurous. They're full of blandly delivered voiceovers. They just have those voiceovers over prosaic stock footage. But that's a pretty limited view of the genre in that period. And we're going to illustrate that by talking about a type of sequence that these documentaries would sometimes depict in unusual ways, those scenes showing modern commerce. As you pointed out, we sort of equate this classic documentary with newsreels or kind of this stentorian male voiceover. And then you have these other moments in the film where all of a sudden you get a ton of other things going on. So you'll get, first of all, just the voice itself changes. You'll get various modulations, changes in pace. Sometimes you'll have multiple different narrators who have really different tones. So in, in Men in Dust, a film I asked you to look at, um, they really have this nasal kind of voice coming in as opposed to this really happy guy who sort of has this like lofty view. So for me, it's just that these soundscapes are so much more complex and varied. And again, they strike you because you'll have these really straightforward scenes followed by an explosion or the sound of telegraph lines or people on the phone and these like beeping and then there's staccato music and they all kind of come at once. And this also matches with often the visual pacing as well. They, to me, I sometimes think of them as, as having roots in, you know, 20s city symphonies and Soviet montage, and they come in the middle of a film and with this kind of fascinating soundtrack laid over them. One of the common threads between the documentaries that you've mentioned is that they're all sponsored films or like they're government-sponsored films or they're nonprofit films. Does that have an effect on the style of these films? So I would say the sponsorship certainly has an impact. Um, So there's this level of, we have often these people who were experimental filmmakers. So Ralph Steiner is a famous kind of photographer and experimental filmmaker who who made these amazing abstract films. One is called H2O, another one is called Mechanical Principles. And then he finds himself um, at the end of the 30s working on this film sponsored by, I think it's like the American Urban Planners Association. And in that film specifically, they wanted to have no voiceover at all. So, but the sponsor complained and wanted sort of the uh, narration in the beginning and end to kind of explain what their message was. And then we have this middle sequence, which I think is more true to their aesthetic. 
These definitely differ from what would be the most common commercial documentary of the periods, which would be kind of newsreels you would encounter in theaters or March of Time, a similar kind of news magazine, which very much often sound like a radio announcer, whereas the films have sort of a more uh, layered track. Well, I think that's a good point of reference to jump right in. And a lot of these films that we're going to be talking about are available online for free. We'll be including links in our show notes, but you can find them on YouTube. The Library of Congress website has one of them. Since we have already referenced The City, that's a film that was directed by Ralph Steiner, already mentioned, and Willard Van Dyke in 1939, I think that's a pretty good piece to jump in because it has a... I suppose, activist approach. It, it is clearly advocating for a set of policies around city planning. Could you describe the city a little bit, Tanya? The film, and like so many of these, kind of have very clear parts. So this film was sponsored by the American Institute of Planners, and the, there has sort of three sections. The first section, um, and this is fairly common um, of sort of these documentaries often produced by civic groups, or gov- the government films as well, so introducing a problem and then sort of showing how the actions of the sponsoring body will kind of ameliorate these conditions. So the film begins with the first section sort of talking about how current cities are filthy and they're really not a good place to live. They haven't been adequately planned. These films almost always have children in them, I guess, to kind of have this emotional appeal about children sort of suffering as well it kind of moves into showing uh, a factory and there's a lot of smog in it, which I think is really interesting. And this section has kind of a straightforward voiceover. It don't make us any happier to know there's millions like us living here on top of it. There's prisons where a guy sent up for crime can get a better place to live in than we can give our children. Smoke makes prosperity, they tell you here. Smoke makes prosperity, no matter if you choke on it. Section two, you know, really rapidly changes pace. And this is sort of where I get my, you know, frenetic modernity sort of idea. And you're kind of in, um, I I believe I'm 99% positive it's shot in New York City. We're in an office building with rows and rows of women type, you know, people at typewriters. The shot actually reminds me a lot of the crowd, the King Vidor film, and then famously duplicated um, in the apartment. And then we sort of get this the sound of people. We beg to remain yours most respectful. Dear sir, we gentlemen to acknowledge And then my favorite part of it is this diner sequence where we have people grabbing cups and there's things popping out and all of the bread popping out of a toaster oven. And we kind of have this cacophony of voices. And then at the end of the section, there's like a car crash and it's like this really dramatic sort of end. And that section has no voiceover whatsoever. It just sort of has music. I think it ha- it has, um, it's, but it's definitely like the noisiest section of the film in both, I think it's visual as well as the sound itself. And then we get to the last section, part three, which has this, you know, here is what our new planned city suburb 
for the white middle class will look like. And you will have nice planned houses and sort of nice rows of houses and you'll be near your school. And you could even walk to your workplace because, you know, we have this sort of supporting of you know, the kind of corporate order. And then that's sort of the film. So that second section is what really, you know, is is striking and where I think there's this really, the film becomes very ideologically inconsistent in a way because it's sort of, the film is like promoting capitalism in that it's promoting, you know, commerce and, or the, the ability to sort of create this planned community for the workers, but then also is being like, this city is freaking crazy and it's, it's, which both works and doesn't work. It, it, I, I did get a sense from the film ideologically that it's not so, they don't really diagnose or propose any kind of, yeah, like s- basic structural changes to the way things are ordered. It's, it's almost like you get the sense in the last third, at least it's like, oh, but what about suburbs? Yeah. The way in which it kind of shifts essentially its relationship to the audience um, at that mm-hmm. about 11 minute mark really fascinates me. And this kind of gets at a, question I have for you, which is this film is about, you know, 10 or 11 minutes of almost direct sell. Yeah. It's addressing us as an audience. And then it's, you know, 20-ish minutes of varying degrees of feeding us imagery and sounds that encourage us to come to certain conclusions. <laughs> They've been curated in a certain way. Um, and to me, that implies a very different relationship to the audience than, hey, we are addressing you. This is essentially a lecture. And yeah. we're speaking of that second part as the exception. Right. This is unusual for documentaries of the era. Why do you think it worked out this way? And why do you think that more documentaries from this time period, and I guess, I mean, throughout history, um, don't engage in more indirect ways of provoking thought and emotion? Well, I think the reason these aesthetics kind of arise is that a lot of these filmmakers that become this sort of early documentary really are an avant-garde. And I think we forget about this sometimes because we think, you know, documentaries or the average person documentaries are very bland, especially ones that are this early. Really, a lot of the figures who sort of came, come out of the kind of modernist avant-garde in the 1920s, so who are heavily influenced by city symphony aesthetics and Soviet montage theories. And I think, so it's sort of this fascinating shift that a number of them go into making documentary and thinking about how you might represent the world in inventive ways. So documentary really is the vanguard, is among one of many aesthetic changes that emerges in the 30s. And I think with these, you start to see sort of sound also being montage. So we think about Eisenstein writing, you know, about contrapuntal sound, or Rene Claire also making similar points that sound shouldn't be naturalistic. So I think that's sort of how we see these weird moments that almost, I think of them sometimes as like flying under the radar of sense of the sponsors, or at the very least, as long as the film surfacely does what it needs to do, we don't mind having these cool moments of experimentation. Another thing I wanted to bring up about the city in particular, I was glad you brought up the bread sequence as a favorite sequence, because one of my favorite things about that sequence is, well, the, the score for the film in general was composed by Aaron Copeland, which is quite a get. Mm-hmm. And the score in the moment of that bread sequence is extraordinary. The thing that struck me the most was that it sounds like a post-minimalist, like Philip Glassy piece. Like it's all, it's it's very similar. Mm-hmm. 
has very simple rising and falling rhythms that repeat, 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 and then chord change and repeat, 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 add one uh, additional element on top of these little flurries and chord change again. Yeah. And it's interesting because a major motif in how all of these uh, films, I think, imagine commerce is the idea of mechanical, hurried repetition. The score in each of them becomes interesting for how it does or does not express that. And I guess we'll be able to expand on that as we go a little bit, because I think there's more to say as we go through each film. So I'm really glad that you brought up repetition um, in the specific scene because Steiner and Willard Van Dyke in earlier works very much have repetition. So the films that come to mind would be uh, Mechanical Principles, which Steiner uh, shoots, I think, in 31. And then um, a film and also government sponsored film called Hands, which uh, is from like 34 and basically has, a, it's literally just close-ups of hands kind of moving through the frame and getting kind of a government check. And they're also sort of repetition and hypnotic. And you could even perhaps say that Steiner's, I would say probably his most famous film is called H2O. And that's a silent one that is literally just 16 minutes of like looking at water. Um, mm -hmm. And it becomes increasingly more abstract. And it is sort of amazing to look at repetition of water and it's a really wonderful film they should have printed this at uh at my film school in my first year i remember that well <laughs> another of the films that we want to talk about the song of cylon is interesting in that its overarching structure uh, uh reminds me a lot of the city it's a documentary on the sinhalese people in sri lanka and it is focused on their daily customs and like the city it's divided into parts there's four parts the first part focuses on their religious life. So on the soundtrack, we frequently hear prayers, chanting, singing. Sometimes that stuff is played over images that are not directly connected to those sounds, like people walking across a bridge or hiking up a mountain. And it lends a spiritual connotation to their hike because that hike is part of a pilgrimage that's connected to their Buddhism. Part two has more elaborate musical backing. It has an original score and still some sounds associated with their daily activities are heard. Like we hear children laughing and playing, some of their agriculture of their daily life. There's some sound effects and so on, some dialogue. And then part three arrives and part three is titled Voices of Commerce. We don't know, I, I, at least I don't know exactly what we're going to title this episode. Like, it's going to be definitely something that I workshop. But Voices of Commerce is a, would be a really good one. And I'm like yeah. teetering on, on, on going for that. But anyway, that's, this is the commerce section. And it depicts the arrival of these modern day-to-day -day processes. So we see them working in factories. We see them loading goods onto huge steamships. And some of this has these loud sounds like automobiles and stuff playing over the soundtrack. But then some of this, it shows them doing work that is more traditional. And there are sounds of facts and figures from letters, like someone reading the price of goods, someone saying destination, just all sorts of just very, very functional, bureaucratic, highly repetitious, again, things being said. And it's counterpointed right over these images of traditional behavior. And then those images gradually transition to people loading stuff onto a steamship and then walking through crowded streets. So... Then the last section of the film is a at least partial reversion to this more kind of bucolically presented 
idea of this traditional life. But I, I don't want to get too far ahead of us. Uh, is, does that sound like a good description to you guys? Or? Yeah. I think it's great. And it's this one's really helpful because they actually have title cards breaking it into sections for us. So it yes. makes it mm-hmm. very easy for us um, to look at. And again, as you were describing, again, as you probably have figured out, section three is is the one that I think of when I think of capitalism or getting caught in this sort of global network of commerce. And again, the way you're describing the images versus the sound, it really, again, supports this idea that of, of contrapuntal puntal sound or this this risk among people when sound started happening with cinema oh my god we're going to just have to reproduce reality but with this film of course that isn't the case the images and sound don't match i want to side note for a second this is also partially technological because to shoot outdoors sound just wasn't really in the budget or even much of a thing at this point so documentary is really until the late 50s 60s when we start getting handheld it's they're very often silent because of that. But the added bonus to me is that we get these insane sort of sampling or remixing of noises. So this one is to me, it's like all of the sounds of the commercial world of British global empire, colonial dominance or something. I I think this is a great example of, um, you know, using one's limitations. I'm glad you brought up the idea that they couldn't record sync sound, um, which didn't really, again, become that possible on portable cameras until the 60s. So they were stuck with either, you know, trying to create a facsimile of reality in post, or they could do what they did here, which I think is much more interesting. You have moments like the, you know, the elephant knocking the tree over and when the tree, when the palm tree hits the ground, it's, it's this industrial noise. <laughs> so you have this uh, comparison in the, or at least it struck me as like something I'd expect to hear, like some sort of like steel beams at a factory or something. It did not sound like vegetation. Um, and this motif repeats a lot. And I couldn't help but think that they're trying to equate these various industrial methods um, using a juxtaposition of sound and visuals. And if, for example, they could have, you know, recorded on set the audio that, you know, actually occurred at that point, um, they might not have even arrived at that as a possible as a possibility for expression. So this film was, you know, produced by the British government, which Mm. um, the British government really does is kind of at the forefront of these amazing documentaries throughout uh, of the 1930s. So it's run by John Grierson, who has our kind of famous definition of documentary as the creative treatment of actuality. Um, And I think these films sort of really drive that kind of potential home, this creativeness. Um, So this film specifically was sponsored, I believe it's called the Cylon uh, tea board, uh, tea. The Cylon Tea Propaganda, propaganda. Board. Yeah. Oh yeah, sorry. The they were not subtle, but also the definition <laughs> of propaganda. I think during this period, we we it didn't have as serious, uh, sinister undertones as well. But yes, it was commissioned by the Empire Marketing Board with the Cylon Cylon, Cylon Tea Propaganda Board, and the <laughs> British government then film was later run by the post office. So actually all these films were later produced under the post office, which is interesting. But I think we think about this film, this film though was, you know, of course it's impossible to look at this film without looking at it through a colonial gaze. You know, if we think about the British empire, the sun never sets on it. We have Cylon, one tiny piece in a cog. So this film was created and would be shown in Britain and it would allow sort of 
you know, regular Bretonians in the metropole to see the empire and see sort of how Cylon contributes, which of course is extracting goods and coming in and sort of changing the lifestyle of the people. So the film is fascinating because we have these other chapters, which are about, you know, they do have an Orientalist sort of gaze on them. But again, I love that commerce section because to me that makes that part so clear of how it fits within this kind of system. And we have our sort of, I love the British people, like we we beg to inform you that this is happening. And then they have like the telegraph. I'm not going to try to make the noises because that would be embarrassing. Um, and letters and all these different uh, voices. Um, and there's this sort of like business-like thing overlaid in some instances on, on the person who's climbing up the tree. And I really am so impressed with how that person is able to climb up the tree with like tying a rope and like jumping almost up the tree and then an elephant, which are, you know, more natural kind of things. And then we see like the factory. The film is interesting because I feel like it's, it's structure is, is very clear. And on the other hand, it's probably purposefully cagey about what exactly its propagandistic aims are, what its final mm-hmm. aims are. And it's interesting that your take on it is that it was likely a way for people just sitting in a theater in in Britain to get this wider sense of an empire. Would you say that maybe a sense of of melding the traditional with modern behavior while obfuscating the problems of that or 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 simplifying them through a sort of colonial vision? Does that sound like a reasonable reading of the film or is that me? I'm trying to be very careful here because I I'm I there's a danger of of post hoc analysis on my part with this, I think, but I also couldn't tell you anything specific about, you know, Sri Lankan resistance to British rule, but I, it's the life in this, there is no conflict in this film at all. This is very much a, you know, life is, you know, life is harmonious in Cylon and we are the British ruler. And, you know, so I think it very much sort of serves that ideological project to like affirm the government. And that's a real critique of all of these sort of government sponsored films is that they, there's a, there's a, someone, I can't remember who possibly said this, but like, you know, these government sponsored films will sometimes, um, and this is the case of other films will sometimes allude that things need to be fixed, but the government fixes them or the government makes it okay. They don't actually do any changes to the system. So it is, you know, they're very conservative um, in aims. Yeah. I I would say the, the ultimate kind of result of the structure of the one, two, three, four part structure is insinuating the modern commerce section into the daily rhythms of their yes. life. Yeah. And and the, the counterpoint of sound is not necessarily meant to be ironic, but is meant to be a, uh, a means of merging or melding or, or type of inclusiveness. Inclusiveness often being a euphemism for all kinds of things under colonialism. Because I, I think these films, and again, as I said, the the commerce scene definitely strikes me as different. And I think these films are fascinatingly ideologically, you know, prob- advancing problematic things, but also just inconsistent in what they're doing, even when they achieve, you know, even though when we can read their specific intent. So before we move on to talking about Men and Dust. I wanted to talk a little bit more about Grierson's definition of documentary as the creative treatment of actuality 
I just wanted to hear more of your opinion of that, because one thing I kind of wanted to explore in, in the planning for this episode over email, you mentioned specifically, I find these techniques much more interesting than fly on the wall documentaries. And, and I, I sensed That's a beef polemic. in there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I could sense, I could sense uh, polemic, or as I call them, beef in there. And I, I wanted to explore that, that beef. I wanted, to, I wanted to hear more about, and I, I suspect that it, it ties in some way meaningfully into that creative treatment of actuality definition. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so that's my polemic. I am outing myself as someone who is, you know, don't get me wrong. I like I like fly on the wall techniques. I think they're interesting, but I think to me they they serve one function. <laughs> but I think these ones, I like the rhythmic editing. I like the sound. To me, it's I don't want to say that, you know, that to shoot fly on the wall isn't creative because you're making a decision. You're picking your subject. You're obviously the editing. And of course there's creativity in any filmmaking practice. And I guess it's also a matter of, you know, when you're shooting documentary, what what is the most important part perhaps? Is it the production when you're literally shooting or is it perhaps post-production uh, maybe? Um, so I, I guess I just appreciate the creative intervention. So for me, and this relates to you know contemporary documentaries. Also, I'm really into ones that sort of, you know, a more postmodern turn that try to question the truth or undermine you, or ones that trick you. So you know, one of the documentaries that blows my mind that I think is brilliant because it uses um, our comfort with fly on the wall and then completely flips it on you. And I don't want to spoil it. Is called No Lies by Mitchell Block. If any, if you guys should definitely see it. I already spoiled it now, but basically uses the fly on the wall. And then at the end, you're like, shit, they lied to me. Um, right. or, and you feel so violated. And that's sort of, I think, another way where another place where you get the definition of documentary from is that contract with the viewer that you, the filmmaker, you know, you kind of take a leap of faith very often and think the documentary is going to, you know, tell you the truth, whatever the truth is. Um, and then when they mess with you. So another one I like, you know, I love in this regard that's that I think is just great is Stories We Tell, Sarah Polly's work. Mm. And uh, I always show that one to my students because I think that one uses all different types of footage, including more conventional styles or more conventional contemporary styles. So your attraction to Fly on the Wall or, or, or documentaries in that vein largely seems to be... I mean, I mean, you you very graciously caveated that that it's not that you don't enjoy those techniques, but uh, your interest in them is only really elevated when the sort of underlying precepts of those techniques get challenged within the film itself. Is am I kind of reading you right there? Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's much more eloquently put than I made. But yes, that is absolutely <laughs> true. And I think it's also a matter of you know, for me, it was just learning about you know, other types of films and I'm using other was just so transformative, you know, compared to what you are used to. So if we think about what I watched growing up and I was a comparative, I wouldn't say I was, you know, the most adventurous viewers, but I was not watching what my friends were watching. I watched a lot of old Hollywood and I watched sort of the canon of foreign films when I can get them, when I could get them at my blockbuster. Um, so going to college and just seeing things that were just different were really appealing to me. So when I saw something that was documentary that wasn't fly on the wall or kind of just straight interviews, it's just instantly, I think, just was more engaging to me. Um, 
I don't necessarily have a beef with fly in the wall at all, but I just find you have a the polemic other, on them. A polemic, yes, I have. A, <laughs> I feel like that's a that's a common thing among because there's so many different kind of factions when it comes to what to prize in documentary reality that um, but that no one really is against any of the other ways of doing things unless you're like Werner Herzog and you're you know you're you're railing against that but it's almost like my where I kind of personally come from that is uh, oftentimes I see these as a set of languages rather than constrictors, which a lot of people see them as, right? Like, I mean, I've had some arguments with some documentary, especially teachers, who um, argue that the only way to show reality is to not touch it, be a fly on the wall, right? Versus my view is more that it's a tool of representation that can be used, but it ought not to be like a a walled garden of possibility, if that makes sense. I, I think this kind of discussion interacts really interestingly with the uh, documentaries that we're kind of talking about here because I think a lot of these filmmakers who we're discussing have a, a subset of their ideology about documentaries um, is kind of a belief that, you know, we should give the audience kind of the truth and not necessarily create documentaries that advocate or are propaganda, so to speak. The idea that a lot of documentary filmmakers see a dichotomy between documentary and propaganda, right? Like, if if you're making propaganda, you're not making a documentary and vice versa. But I would argue that a lot of the films here, maybe maybe even all of them in in one way or the other, are propaganda for one thing or another, while also functioning as, you know, documentaries. Um, Do you feel that there's a tension there? Or do you think that the two can coexist peacefully, so to speak? I definitely think the two could coexist, like absolutely coexist. And I will just say, again, I actually am a wimp and don't particularly want to be polemical. I just happen to find these films infinitely more aesthetically interesting than Fly on the Wall. So Yeah, well, I was just going to say, maybe I'll, I'll just try and offend everyone right now and say that it's totally possible to make Fly on the Wall propaganda. Um, oh, oh, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Hell hell yeah. So anyway, yes. Yeah, so I... I, I I think these documentary is can is is itself probably depending on how we define propaganda documentary. Um, you know, there can be one in the same. You know, so I or if you think about like I tend to often when I teach this because I do adjunct um, and teach undergrads, and when I have the opportunity to teach my week on documentary, I usually call it nonfiction filmmaking, so I can bring in sort of a broader range um, of aesthetics. You know, again, because to clearly I'm just gravitating back towards uh, controversial claims. So again, I'm going to bring up the the worst documentary ever, you know, which oh. is which is Triumph of the Will, of course, which is a, you know, mm-hmm. odious, uh, you know, Nazi propaganda film. And the ideologies are terrible and what it does, but we can agree it is a technically impressive film. And mm-hmm. most of us, I, I hope almost everyone that is alive would call it propaganda, but it is a, but it is a documentary in the same way that the British, you know, Silenese tea propaganda board sponsored film is also a form of propaganda. Again, it's uncomfortable to say because I'm not endorsing, you know, in any way the ideology of behind them, but they are both function as propaganda as well as they fall under the umbrella of documentary filmmaking as well. Moving on to our next film, I wanted to talk about it in relation to that idea. It's Men in Dust, and it is a film about the conditions in the tri-state mines around Kansas, Missouri, and Oklahoma 
that if their mines for lead and zinc. And so the piece advocates for better working conditions and regulations to protect miners. And there are a number of scenes depicting the conditions and the soundtrack is primarily composed of choral music playing in the background, a handful of voices, um, and sometimes they'll sing in lower, more doomy tones, and sometimes in more lyrical, high, playful tones. And there's a poetic quality to the soundtrack, so an example of it is danger, danger of lead poison, poison danger, danger from, from dust, dust. Men, men drop down, down the shaft, down the shaft, down the shaft, lead for pipes and bullets and gases, zinc for medicines and batteries and paint. Thousands of tons of rock ore daily. It's a million dollar business. A million dollar business. Million dollar, million dollar, million, million, million. The pace of narration increases. The choir rises and quickens. And in the sequence focusing on city commerce, we hear the sounds of electric wires, financial figure recitations piling on top of each other. Someone makes a phone call or is working a switchboard saying New York over and over. So this one is sponsored by kind of an activist group. So going back to documentary, this is, you know, what I would be least likely to call propaganda because I support the politics of, you know, worker health and safety. So this actually came about because uh, one of the directors, Sheldon Dick, had been commissioned by a group to go photograph uh, the area and then was a wealthy guy. So then was like, I'm going to go out back and make a film. And so the one thing that directly is from this printed report that's in the film are the shots of the people who are in the meantime, they sicken. In the meantime, they die at the ends. And those are still images there. But of course, those are, you know, probably staged as well, where he went presumably into homes to photograph them. Um, a lot of it also is stock footage. So one other thing I want to point out that I think that is fascinating that um, as someone who's studied this film in depth, and this is sort of my origin story of how I got into all of these, because this film just blew my mind about what documentary could be because of just the sound just completely, you know, contrasting each other. It felt almost Brechtian, but part of the film actually is appropriated from a government sponsored film called Stop Silicosis because the film is about this lung condition. Uh, so the part um, in the film where there's like, you get your grade B card if you can go back to work and the part where you have a picture of lungs is actually them taking it from a government sponsored film about sort of how you the worker could save yourself from silicosis so the film then is you know a uh, critique of itself of government propaganda so this film to me is the most radical of the bunch because it's affiliated with a union and not sponsored by a government group and that was other than this being like my favorite movie ever, I wanted to include it a lot with Song of Cylon and The City because I think it's like, it represents a different kind of side of the political spectrum. Yeah, and, and that that's fascinating about the reappropriation of footage in a new ideological context too. That gets at so much of, of about what is interesting about uh, different means by which a documentary is made or different soundtracks that are placed over an image. Maybe it's more strictly anatomically focused 
medical diagnosis in the original, for example, whereas in Men in Dust, it's clearly more keyed into sympathy with exploited workers. The whole film itself is sort of, you know, the Stop Silicosis film was created by the U.S. government to sort in response to an outcry over basically silicosis, you know, something you've never heard of probably nowadays was a kind of a big deal in the 30s. And so there was gov- there was outcry about a certain incidents that occurred in West Virginia with sick workers. So the government con- convened a forum and one of their solutions was, let's make a movie about it. And the film is sort of about gives a bunch of uh, recommendations about how workers can avoid getting sick and what the mine owners should do to avoid the kind of dust that gets in the air that people would inherit. So the film in taking the footage definitely like critiques the kind of more antiseptic language that we see in Stop Silicosis and and medical films um, in general. The thing that fascinates me about the film in general, though, is it very much like encapsulates, I think, these sort of dual tendencies within documentary um, of the 30s, where we have our sort of, you know, frenetic or capitalist critique or these, you know, kind of really fast paced situations going on with the more prosaic, straightforward voiceover, which we have in Men and Dust at the, at the, towards the end we have, and here are the union points that you need to advocate for. And then at the very end, we sort of have that happy, like America, like life, liberty and pursuit of happiness sort of vibe to it. So you, it's just fascinating to me, this film sort of encapsulates this sort of like radical modernist aesthetic that we get with sound um, in documentary and visuals, and then this sort of more social realist aesthetic that we off- that often gets spoken about as sort of this primary aesthetic of the 30s, a more straightforward sort of visual style. And if we think about like a famous image, like Dorothea Lange's Migrant Mother would be something like that's often said to be this hallmark of social realist photography. You said that this is your favorite film of all time, And a lot of the things that we've been talking about that are unique to this period in these films are not a feature, particularly in films anymore. Do you you have a sort of melancholy for these films ideologically and in terms specifically of the soundtracks, how they handle sound, something that you wish you saw more of in documentary today? That is a great question. Um, You know what? I, the answer is I don't, I don't have an answer. I, you guys are the filmmakers, so you just need to impress me in your next work, I think. No, I'm, right. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. You I know, know that's you know valid. I think that's valid. I, you know, the answer is I don't exactly know. And I, right now, trying to write a dissertation means I'm not keeping up as, um, as much on contemporary films as I would like to. Um, right. The one film that I think, obviously, that I, the, the great sound that I think about, and it's in no way similar, particularly similar to the films I'm talking about, though I love, you know, uh, Harvard Sensory Ethnography Lab and they're like the sound of Leviathan is like so good. And then like, there's this really great film by uh, Sarah Crispin uh, called Gowanus Canal, which is uh, just like sounds of gears and things moving. So I just like, I love these soundscapes, but they don't, there's no films that I can think of off the top of my head that sort of have the vocal as well as the music, as well as the kind of like other sounds for ambient sounds or like, I can't think of something that contemporary that combines them in the same way. Um, And part of that is also, I think there, I don't want to say melancholy, but I think, you know, as a historian, you're always trying to recapture or like reclaim the past or 
put yourself there. So I think like the fact that they are different is what I, one of the reasons why they are so interesting to me. I think mm-hmm. it's always hard to put a stamp on like what interests you. Why? I, I see a lot of echoes of these films in modern documentaries, but there's nothing that's really carrying on like this specific can fully constructed soundscape i think yeah where you I, I can there's a lot of documentaries i think that the sensory ethnography ethnography lab is probably the best example where the soundscape is incredibly important i I, I think even like back to like frederick wiseman's like ambient like depictions of institutions but nothing where uh, there's no like frederick wiseman where he's replacing all the sounds with something completely fully based right um and then you have filmmakers like Errol Morris, who are really, you know, fabulists, right? They'll like construct these environments, but there's not really, they're not really creating soundscapes. It's more rhetorical argumentation via symbolic images than anything else. The other thing I think is crucial is again, that we can record diegetic sound so easily now. I mean, not to say that they're not recorded and overlaid. I know contemporary filmmaking is much more complex, but there is that ability to, you know, uh, record diegetic sound or on location sound and these films that I think the films that I'm talking about I think it's really important that they don't have diegetic sound and then there's this really rich ability to experiment my big goal I guess in general is as I kind of joked my tagline of like I promise documentaries of the 30s and 40s a lot of them are way more you know interesting than you would think I'll close with another one that is my favorite Government sponsorship in some instances led to really cool stuff. So uh, there's an animated documentary, I would call it, in the tradition of um, by Len Lai, who's a New Zealander who works for the GPO, the Grand, the British Post Office Film Government Sponsoring Board, called uh, Trade Tattoo, yes. which is about you know posting your mail on time, but uses nonfiction footage, but of course with his signature kind of overlays. And the other thing, since we're all now stuck um, in our homes and Luckily, we have the internet. Is these films? Almost all of them are screen like streaming online for free somewhere. They are not, you know. I just always say, please be a curious viewer. If it's not on Netflix, it doesn't mean it doesn't exist. Like a lot of there's so many, you know, great um, online streaming resources uh, and weird things out there. When we look beyond kind of theatrical documentaries or feature films. Yeah, trade tattoo. If if I I yeah. would love for people listening to this to go check out trade tattoo. Is there anything you'd like to plug in particular before we sign off? Or they can Google me. You can if you want to just put my Twitter. <laughs> Google me. No, if you want, I, I'm not I'm not that big of a deal, but I've I've written about some cool films. So Nonsense. They can just, so just put me. You know, just you can put my Twitter on the thing if you want. Or what I is a big deal, it. anyways? Yeah. What is a big deal? Thank you so much for helping us to discover some of this cool stuff in these new avenues. Paige is right behind me, waving goodbye. Bye, Paige. Thank you for joining us today. Paige Smith is our associate producer. If you enjoyed today's podcast, subscribe, rate, and review us on your fine podcast service that you choose to use. That really helps other people discover it. We love it when you do that. If you want to come on the show or if you've got some sort of idea, some sort of question for us, just, you know, get in touch with us. We might answer you by email via filmformally at gmail.com. Or you can find us on social media on Twitter or Facebook at filmformally. We would like to acknowledge that this podcast was recorded on the unceded territory of the Musqueam, Squamish, and tsleil peoples. 
See you next time. I think we're going to be talking about Star Wars. My favorite film ever is this film called The Savage Eye, which you should totally watch if you've never seen Wait, it. Wait, I thought you just said your favorite film ever was Men in Dust. Oh, okay. Sorry. I have like a few. Tanya, your credibility no, shot. No, no. Okay, I'm not bringing you of, back. One of my... <laughs>